morning, everyone. It is, again, a real joy, blessing, and privilege to serve you as your pastor, to bring the Word of God to you, to be here again after a period of time away. I want to give thanks for those who have labored in various ways in service in my absence. Thank you for all that you have done, particularly those who have taught and those who have preached, those who have led in various ways. Um, uh, again, I, um, I must say I'm not, I'm not trying to um, uh, gas Adrian up or anything like that, but um, Adrian has preached every Sunday morning in my absence, and I want to uh, say thank you for that. Um, uh, did everyone appreciate his ministry? Okay, um, we, we, we give God praise for you, Adrian, and not only do we give God praise and glory, we thank you for your service, and we, we also thank David for his um, commitment to leading the, uh, the prayer meetings, and we thank those who were involved in leading the small groups, um, as you always do. Uh, so thank you, each of you, and the many other ones who do things behind the scenes that are absolutely critical, whether that be... Um, the sister who's um, uh, operating the social media or those who are involved in cleaning or food preparation or any number of things, uh, thank each of you for your service. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll open up the New Testament letter of Titus. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your goodness and grace. Thank you that you have strengthened and sustained us through uh, this, this past month. Uh, you are present with us. You are working in us and through us by your Holy Spirit. And nothing is by our might or our power or our exertion, but it is all according to the power of the Holy Spirit by your grace. And um, uh, yet we thank you that as gifts have been freely distributed and given to your people, your people are growing in their use of them. And we, um, we thank you for that. Please, Lord, help us now as we learn from your word. Strengthen us and um, uh, may the prayer of the song we just sang be our prayer now as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, make us more like Jesus. Amen. So we're in Titus chapter 2 this morning, uh, picking up where I left off. Does anyone remember what we were talking about the last Sunday? Men. Okay, so it was good news for men. Uh, today, it's going to be good news for, testing logic, women. Okay, good news for men and good news for women. Titus chapter 2, let's read from verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And if you skip down uh, to verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I always um, uh, laugh a bit when I come to um, uh, passages uh, that tap into the age-old battle of the sexes. Because the mood in the room, any room, regardless of what people believe or how they've been taught or anything, it always changes. The men are particularly dialed in to what I have to say about the women. The women are particularly dialed in 
to what I have to say about the men. I was getting very good feedback from the sisters. Uh, my, my last Sunday here as I was preaching about men, it was a message called Good News for Men. It wasn't bad news. It wasn't me, I hope, not beating up on the guys. So I hope that this morning no one hears anything that I'm about to say as beating up on the sisters. That actually sounds worse. <laughs> Didn't think about that when I said it. Um, not appropriate. We, we have to, to start listening to the Word of God. We have to start submitting ourselves to what God has to say to us, not what God has to say to someone else. You know, there, there's um, a tendency to, um, to we, we get to a, a passage about men and uh, the, the general attitude is let them, ha- let them have it. Give it to them. And there's a passage about women and, um, you know, we'll find various contextual ways to work around some of the, the harder things that the passage has to say. That's not acceptable. It's not reverent. It's not honoring to God. And it's not, it's not actually in the spirit of, again, what we just sang, make us more like Jesus. So I want to appeal to all of us to listen. Men, please don't go to the other extreme and check out. But I am asking that you not listen so intently that later in the week you weaponize what I say um, in some particular way that might be unhelpful to your relationships. Um, Sisters, I would ask that uh, this be heard as um, uh, not my words. If there's something that I say and it's clearly from Scripture demonstrated that that's just Ryan messing about, reject it. If it is something that, um, that you can see from the Scriptures, embrace it. Okay? And that's, that's my appeal to you. And uh, I'm, I'm living in the spirit of verse 15. I, I don't have any authority in myself. But God has said through His servant, the Apostle Paul, declare these things. So I have to talk about it. I have to exhort. I have to rebuke. And um, someone once said that I occasionally say things that make them want to slap me. Um, And that I can totally understand um, because um, uh, I'm I'm sure I I probably am that kind of person um, in some ways. Please don't do that. Take, Take the Scriptures. Take the Word of God. Take what Jesus is saying to His church today. Women, I think it's fair to say we have a problem. Quite a few problems, in fact. Um, Yeah, no, in the same way that problems with men are not reducible to women, your problems are not reducible to men. That's very important that I say that. As um, I'm a listener... That means wherever I am, wherever I go, I'm listening to, not only watching people, I'm listening to what they're saying. And a lot of the time, when I hear women talking to each other, they're talking about men and everything wrong with men. It's quite dispiriting. It's very deflating. And as a man, I first respond as one who's sad that men are not doing more. To prevent that. Well, I've addressed you last time, so I have to bring it back to the ladies. Sisters, your problems are not reducible to men and your issues with them, what they have or have not done. We have to start there. Um, The tendency to blame shift goes back to Adam and Eve. It's counterproductive to your wholeness. It's counterproductive to your holiness We all, men and women, we must take responsibility for our own sinful thoughts. My sinful thoughts are not someone else's fault. We all must take responsibility for our sinful words, our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions. And they're at times quite damaging impact. It's not someone else's fault. My sin is my fault. 
Your sin is your fault. Do we live in a context? Yes. Are we um, all connected in some way? Absolutely. No man is an island. But our sin, my sin is my fault. Your sin is your fault. And so we, we need to stop projecting onto someone else our own issues. I hope that's making sense. Uh, let's let's dig, dig a bit deeper. Um, the... the Situation in our own nation. Look at, look at just criminal justice, for example. Indictable offenses among women are increasing, as are uh, cautions. The number of cautions given to females for violence against the person exceeds that of males by a full 10%. That's, that's not messing with the numbers at all. That is saying violence against person cautions given to women are 10% more than those given to men. That's a problem. We're used to hearing male stats being a lot worse than women's stats. Criminologists over the past 30 years have noted a rapid increase in female violent crime. Some of us have had conversations about seeing that and experiencing that in real time in our own community. We've prayed about it in prayer meeting. We've talked about the behavior we see on Wood Green High Road after school. And um, the, the shift I have seen, even in the past 10 years, of packs of uh, aggressive and violent men, young men, seemingly replaced in very recent years by the same, but of women. I told you about um, a, a series of weeks last summer where every Monday... Might have been every day for all I know, but every Monday, my day off, I sat in the, the, the cafe and um, um, uh, pret, and uh, uh, it was all kicking off. And it was ladies, it was, it was girls. And they stabbed people. They had scissors, like hair scissors, the long, thin, pointy ones. And um, I, I, you know, the, the security were overwhelmed, the police were overwhelmed. I got involved, other security guards got involved, and it. It was chaotic, and for me, it was like, what do I do? Because it, for a guy dealing with another guy, that's more, in my mind, easy to deal with. But here's a crazed teenage girl with a knife, hair scissors that she wants to plunge into someone's neck. See, this is, this is wrong. But this is a trajectory that, that uh, this is not just me talking. Criminologists have seen over the past 30 years this is developing. There is still a gender gap in crime. Men still commit far more crimes than women. But studies have shown that crime rates are actually decreasing in the Western world in general over the past 30 years, particularly among men. But the number of women convicted has increased significantly. In the same um, uh, 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 way that... Um, you know, that's happening. We see uh, in some of our nation's cities the number of female arrests increased by as much as 50% from 2015 to 2016 alone in one year. The global female prison population is surging, still small compared to men, but growing faster than at any point in recorded history. Over 20 years ago, that long ago, there were reports already emerging that while female behavior might not um, uh, um, cause physical harm in the same way as male perpetrators of domestic violence, women were more consistently aggressive in domestic confrontation. It seldom rises to the scale of male violence, again I must say, but the study um, I have in view speaks mainly about um, uh, pushing, slapping, hurling objects, and it generally goes unreported. Dr. Malcolm George, in a 2000 uh, lecture, he's a lecturer in neuroscience at London University, used anecdotes that might surprise people. Uh, for many decades, the image of the macho man in Hollywood was a Western actor, John Wayne. And this particular study talks about how this guy was uh, apparently a battered husband as was um, uh, the actor before him, who was also sort of the macho Hollywood guy, Humphrey Bogart, a battered husband. 
Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States, who um, gave the Emancipation Proclamation um, and uh, led the nation through civil war, uh, his, his wife apparently broke his nose with a lump of wood. You know, there's lots of stories that could be told. I know it's not statistical. But uh, this particular person argued on the basis of an accumulation of such stories that female-on-male violence goes back to Elizabethan times, an argument that I think is silly because I believe it's to be found throughout history. He noted in his study um, over 20 years ago that 50% of the time the aggression was not reactive, it was initiated. So if something kicked off that incriminated both parties, half of the time it could actually be said the woman started it. Now, sisters, don't hear me as saying, oh, you know, this is, Ryan's a guy, and he's up there saying, the woman started, it's the women's fault. Adam did that with Eve, and I hope that nothing that I've said is taken in that spirit. It's, you know, it's the woman you gave me, God. Brothers, don't do that this week. Um, we, we do have to be real, though. Sisters, you, you, you know, you need to talk among yourselves, as we'll get into that, about the issues that are developing in our society. Enough about the violence. What about sex? A survey of 2,000 people found that young British women are more promiscuous than their male counterparts. And uh, they are more likely to be unfaithful. By the age of 21, the surveyed women had had an average of nine sexual partners A quarter of young women had slept with more than 10 partners in the first five years since losing their virginity, which, by the way, was averagely at the age of 16. More than half said they weren't even in love with the person to whom they lost it, and that's that's kind of the lowest common denominator. Only 32% believed that low common denominator was actually important before sleeping with someone. Over 50% admitted to cheating on a partner. Again, over 50% said that they had done so at least twice. Infidelity in marriage is also on the rise with some studies reporting that married young women in particular aged 18 to 29 are more likely to commit adultery than their husbands. That sample is smaller, however, because marriage in that age category is smaller. And uh, it's being delayed. And after that, childbearing is being further delayed, not least um, assisted by abortifacient um, contraceptives and abortion. This is, let me be clear, waiting on marriage, waiting to have children is not always a wrong or a bad thing. Singleness is God's plan and indeed God's gift for some. It should be encouraged and affirmed where appropriate and present. It should be helped. It should be equipped. Our single sisters should should be supported. There is room for those who are single and those who are married in the body of Christ. We're talking about other stuff here lest anyone misunderstand, how to be single and godly, how to be single and Christ-like is an important conversation. How to be married and Christ-like is an important conversation. When for wrong and unnecessary reasons, there are people who choose singleness and childbearing for wrong and unnecessary reasons, that diminish the beauty and glory of God in marriage and family. We we have to address it. it. It's not only affecting us spiritually, it's setting the stage for social issues down the road. That's not the whole picture though, is it? I want to be perfectly clear that our sisters are not simply perpetrators They are victims of sin as well. In a fallen world, we sin and we're sinned against. Domestic violence, 
sexual objectification, harassment, abuse, and rape, inequitable treatment in school and the workplace, abandonment or neglect by husbands, disrespect from children, and so many things that break my heart as a pastor that our sisters in this room can testify to, that have been experienced, that have been spoken about, and are suffered disproportionately and sometimes, yes, uniquely by women. We need good news for women. All that I just said might paint a bleak picture and you're like, yeah, it does. And you spent a lot of time talking about it. We have to talk about it. We have to call it out. We have to shine light on the darkness. And, and so when we see a dark world and we see the impact it is having upon our sisters, we need to take spiritual warfare to those things and we do so with the good news of Jesus Christ. We have good news for women. Not only do we need good news for women, we have it. Good news that we all need, good news that we're all helped by, but today I must speak specifically to you women. Good news is behind this passage. If you are reading it and, and resisting elements of it at all, I want you to know, I want you to see good news is behind the passage. Verse 11 is the foundation, not the result. Four. It's a, it, it joins the statements before that to something that actually precedes it. I'm saying it later, but I'm saying these things because before I said those things, God did something. God has shown us His grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is the foundation. That's the starting place. Good news in the past. Grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Good news in the present. It is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our, our blessed hope. So, present, it's training us. That's good news. We're not on our own. It's not saying this happened in the past. Now you've got to sort yourself out because you should already be sorted. Rather, it's saying there's a, there's a progress. There's, there's some movement that's happening. And then there's good news future. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As hard as this life is, as hard and difficult and challenging as it can be, I hope that you know some blessing. I hope that you know joy and goodness. And that you know that in the presence and power of God, not least. But hear me, the best is indeed yet to come. Jesus Christ, who reigns, will appear and when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Any mysteries will be clarified. Anything we're not sure about will be sorted out. Any problems that remain will be dealt with and addressed. Our hope is in the present for the future. Good news. But all that's there in the text. There's some other things I want to show you, if I may. More specifically... God sees you. Women, God sees you. The text presupposes this truth. It assumes it, but because you might not assume it, I'm stating it. Women are not invisible in the churches of Crete. So God, through His servant, the Apostle Paul, has a word for them specifically and for you today. They are not shut off out of sight and mind as was common in that culture. In the creed of Paul's day, women had different rooms to live in, different parts of the house that they stayed and worked in. They even worshipped separately according to the various customs, whether Jews or Gentiles. Not in the churches of Crete. It is assumed that Titus will be addressing a mixed congregation. There will be men, there will be women. They'll probably be meeting in a house and they're not going to be having a separate gathering for the women in another room. They're all together and they all have a word from God. Because God sees you, 
women. Whatever your situation and circumstance, woman of God, God sees you. Old women and young women alike, God sees you. If you are in Christ, He sees you as His daughter. To some, you may feel invisible and so unappreciated. You may even feel unloved. Maybe it's your boss who doesn't see you. Maybe it's your colleagues who don't see you. Maybe, God forbid, it's your husband. You feel unseen by him. Or maybe you had a partner or husband, but no more, and this is part of the reason that he didn't see you, and if he saw you, he acted like he saw only bad. Maybe um, single ladies who want to be married, but godly men are interested. Other men may be interested, but they don't see you. They're just looking at you, checking you out. Maybe Christian women, you feel unseen by your fellow believers. And sometimes this is true. Sometimes it's a lie of Satan. To stir up discontent in your soul about your place in the body of Christ. I want to tell you that regardless of who doesn't see you, God sees you. That changes everything. The creator of the universe, the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the one who though he was Equal with God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking up the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men, gestating for nine months in the womb of a woman, sees you. And that is good news. He sees you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is for you, not against you. Can I remind you that the first person in Scripture to name God personally is a woman. Did you know that? Her name was Hagar. Some of you may remember the story. I preached a whole sermon on it a couple of years ago. A woman, not a man. An Egyptian, not a Hebrew. A slave, not free a single expectant mother of an illegitimate son who is not after all the child of promise who was running from an abusive mistress who treated her with contempt and a master who was trying to play God while not being godly. This woman assigned to God a personal name. Do you remember what it is? Elroy. That is the God who sees. The God who sees. She said, I have seen the one who sees me. I recently heard a man asked in an interview if he believed women were theologians. I don't like podcasts, by the way, generally speaking. Uh, some people, they have no business. They're just popping off vain ideas that nobody wants to know or care about. But this particular individual, a self-styled influencer who is always rebranding according to what's popular, um, uh, said, uh, no, um, well, I must clarify to begin with, a theologian, if you're wondering, if you're thinking it has to be some sort of academic guy, um, a, a theologian is simply at its most basic level to be someone who knows about God. And more deeply, someone who knows God. I would encourage you to find the book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. He talks all about it. Being a theologian is knowing God. Do you know God? You're a theologian. This guy um, has a different definition, I guess. I'm not sure. He, because of other agendas and audiences he's playing to, decided to be clever and said he believed women were to be sheologians. It's not a word. But anyway, he began to say that is their knowledge of God is to be with reference to their womanness. Their study of God is to be with reference to their femininity and should be with reference specifically thereby to being women. I think it's a silly and ridiculous thing to say. Christian women 
I'm calling you to see God not through the lens of who you are and what you need from God or what you can get out of God. I'm calling you to see God for who He is, as He is. Not, let me learn more about God as a woman. And I'm going to do so through my, my, my women's study Bible journal that is, is very typecast sort of design. I'm not dissing, um, I see a floral pattern on <laughs> one of the Bibles. That's very nice. It's absolutely acceptable. But there's a lot of coding that goes on that's just silly marketing. Women, you're called to know God as He is. And you're called to think about God simply as who He is, for who He is. That's, that's, that's why when our women have their, their study, they, uh, they're not presently, I'm not saying anything wrong, love, about your um, disciplines of a godly woman Bible study. But you, you've done that after you did an expository series through Hebrews. And consistently delve into Bible books and Bible themes that are not immediately to the outside eye connected with your womanness. That's good. That's right. That's Titus 2 stuff. God sees you and He wants you to see Him. He wants you to see Him as He is. He wants you to see Him and know Him. You don't, does it have implications for you as a woman? Absolutely. But don't start there. Start with you're a human. That is, you are made in the image of God. So you need to get to know the God in whose image you're made. And when you do, you'll see that He sees you. That can be bad news. He sees, he sees you older women and your undignified behavior and your slanderous speech, your gossip, your tearing down of other people. He sees you. He sees you young women and your messy, disrespectful, disordered lives. He sees you. But if you're in Christ, He sees not your sin, but He sees your Savior and His righteousness. Your sins do not cry out against you anymore. At least they do not cry out louder than the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe they're crying, but there's blood that speaks louder. And that's Jesus. The God who sees you sinful, lost, helpless, and hopeless in the wilderness like He did Hagar draws near to you and calls you by your name so that you get to know Him by His. Okay, got to move on. God sees you. God speaks to you. Flowing from the reality that God sees you is the great truth that God speaks to you. It's in the text. Again, it should not be taken for granted. If you assume, if you assume that God would speak to you, that's a testament to the Christianizing of our society with all of its ills in a way that has actually elevated women quite contrarily to the expectations and practices of the ancient world and indeed some environments today wherein the idea that God would speak to a woman was quite offensive to men for some reason. There are societies where men don't even speak to women. At least not publicly. There are situations, perhaps in your own context, where you may be like, he doesn't talk to me. And when he does, I kind of wish he hadn't. I remember sitting with um, a woman and her daughter. This woman had been through a, a real rogues gallery of, um, of relationships and by the grace of God had been freed from uh, a particularly unpleasant situation. She was like, never again. I'll never, I'm never going back down that road. I always breathe in when someone says, Jesus is my boyfriend now. Um, that just doesn't make me feel comfortable. Um, and so I, I understand the sentiment, but literally when she said that, I knew spiritual warfare right around the corner We'll see how long this lasts. Two weeks later, a man literally walked up the garden path, knocked up her door, and said, I'd like to, um, uh, to clean your garden. And she was smitten. And the rest is history. She fell away from walking with the Lord. We were very sensitively trying to like, reason with her in the early infant days of that relationship. And I just remember looking at her, her daughter, almost an adult, not quite, teenage girl, 
also trusting in Jesus and asking what she thought about this guy. And she said, um, he's all right. He talks to me, which I thought was such a tragic and low bar for a man. But in her experience, it wasn't normal. So for us to say God speaks to you, you might not be connecting with that right, right off, but there are people who need to hear that. The question I have is, are you listening? Because if you are, God is telling you to talk to others and to pass on the message that God sees and God speaks to women. The text gives us categories of who ought to teach and who ought to be taught. It assumes the ideal that older women would be more mature. I've not always known that to be the case. But um, we, we have to work with the text and hope older women and younger women both are submitted to maturing in the Lord. And that means older and younger women, you really need to repent of your poor or non-existent communication with each other and get involved in each other's lives in a God-honoring and mutually upbuilding way. The walls have to come down. And the walls that are there are not, are not there because of Jesus. Jesus took, took walls down. Any walls that are still there are ones you've built. So um, uh, that's going to have to be addressed at a human level, intercommunicationally. Go to the text. We see older women are to be taught to teach. They are, yes, but before we get, get, get there, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So there's a standard of maturity that older women you're called to. And that bolsters your teaching ministry to other women. Far too much is assumed sometimes by older women about what younger women know and should be doing. Can, can, can we hear what I'm saying on this? It's unacceptable. Far, I'll say it again if anyone missed it, far too much is assumed by older women about what younger women know and should be doing. They, they might not know. They might not have been taught. Don't sigh in exasperation and walk off judgmentally. Put your arm around them and, and show them how it's done in an encouraging way, not a passive-aggressive, huffy way. Come alongside and, 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 and sort out the situation together. Is, is, is that not more working towards a solution? The other just causes problems. So, silent judgments are made. Perhaps sometimes they're not so silent, but instruction and correction are skipped to get, re, get right to rebuke. Older women make themselves unapproachable and distant in the eyes of younger women, and they will not take their biblically assigned role of approaching younger women, so nothing positive ever actually gets done. No growth happens because biblical discipleship isn't happening. What we read in in Titus 2, older women are, are to teach what is good. Is it happening? Older women are to, to teach the younger women. It's not happening. And that's why younger women continue doing what younger women do without maturing. And then the younger women become the older women and they're not mature because no one showed them how to be mature. And so then they're continuing to... <laughs> mishandle the situation because their models are bad and the cycle is perpetuated and it just gets worse and worse. Paul is not saying older women should be approached because I've heard that before. Older women say, well, they never come to me for advice. That's not, that's, they're not supposed to actually. I mean, it would be nice if they did, I agree, but that's normally not how it works. In any case, Titus chapter 2 says, older women, you need to go to the younger women. Not in some sort of confrontational way. Confrontation sometimes needed, but not initially. Respecting appropriate boundaries and all of that is important. But you need to do the work of bridging those gaps and communicating with those who are less mature and quite potentially younger to invest in them. Why do women not do this? Does anyone know? Does anyone have any ideas? I sat down with a woman and asked because I was like, I, I don't understand. And I, I got some very interesting um, 
feedback on that. Pride. Pride. You're not talking to other women and teaching them because why? I figured it out myself. They should be able to do that. Impatience. Wanting younger women to start where you have stopped instead of approaching them on their level. Laziness. Disinterest. Self-righteous detachment. Perhaps, older women, you, you see how, how uh, you yourselves fall short and you know you won't be listened to, so you don't bother. Maybe you're not reverent. Maybe you're too casual with what you say and how you say it. Maybe you're a gossip. Maybe you're, you're always insinuating stuff, always accusing stuff, cutting down and diminishing instead of building up. Perhaps it's your inability to control yourself or chaos in your own life that makes you feel unable or unqualified to speak. Thus, older women should, as the text says, think first more about themselves and their own growth and development and obsess less about all that the younger generation does wrong. Titus doesn't start with the younger generation. Titus starts older women. You need to learn to be dignified. You need to stop slandering people. You need to stop drinking so much. Now, that might be a cultural thing. That might not be your problem. But what is your problem? What is it that you don't want God to say through Paul to Titus to you that you need to hear? What is it that's keeping you from being heard by your younger sisters? Are we being practical enough at this point? Um, let's, let's go to, to um, one more thought, actually. I have, to, I have to say this. How many younger women have hit a roadblock on the road of spiritual growth and maturity because an older woman gave them a look instead of giving them a hand? How many young women have have done a course correction away from Jesus because older women who were supposed to represent Him bit their head off instead of lifting their head up. Don't kid yourself and think you're Hagar in the story about God seeing you. Maybe you're Sarai in this equation. Maybe you're the abusive mistress. Maybe you're the one that some poor young woman is running from. God sees you too. And He has His ways of sorting you out if you don't turn and come back to Christ and His way of doing things. Sometimes you might need to pray, as I heard a sister once say, God, You saved my soul, now please save my face. You saved my soul, now save my mouth. And of course, we can quibble about the doctrine of salvation. There, When God saves you, He saves all of you. But, but we have to hear the Spirit behind that. Well, let's assume the best. Younger women, that was not a license for you to get bitter about the older women in your life who are not doing their job. It's your turn now. Older women are not approaching younger women for other reasons, perhaps. Uh, maybe the younger women aren't very teachable. Maybe uh, they are proud. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do or how to do it. Dismissive of older women's experience, I hear that all the time. I just feel they're out of touch. I, I just can't connect with them. Why? Because they were a young woman just like you. They were your exact age. They had some of your exact experiences and worse. Some of the stuff the older sisters have been through is far worse than what you've been through. Listen to them. Learn from them. Hear their wisdom. And there's a defensiveness sometimes. Do you think that I'm doing something wrong or not good enough? Young mothers can be particularly, I say it, young mothers can be particularly impossible to talk with about such things. And so functionally choose isolation, but then complain about the lack of support or community that they themselves have created. There was once an older woman with substantial personal and professional experience who approached another woman who obviously needed support and input in her care for her child. 
She did this gently and kindly. And I watched it with my own eyes from one corner of the room to the other was met just with the whole body language of resentment and untrusting, hard-hearted, pushing back disrespect. And I don't feel safe attitude that far too many older women have come to expect from those that they would otherwise advise and help. Younger women, some of you can't be helped because you won't be helped. How many young women have missed out on being helped in faithfulness because they choose to sit in hurt feelings? How many young women have deflected some issues and projected other issues instead of embracing the accountability of the sisterhood? How many young women have chosen to believe Satan's lies and decide that they don't feel safe because an older woman told them that they need to act saved? Finally, I hope we can sit in that, that we don't just park that. Those are things we have to hear. Those are things we have to address. God sees you. God speaks you. Women of God, God has work just for you. You're to teach, the text says. God has even assigned you with a unique audience to particularly address in a unique way with unique understanding and experience, namely other women. Teaching is the instrument. Training is the result. You are to teach what is good and so train. Do you see that in the text? Look at it. You're to teach what is good and so train the younger women. Training is, is um, a, a rich word as particular strength. In the original Greek, it carries the sense of recalling one to his senses. So it's to bring someone back from insanity, from instability, from imbalance in some way, and um, to, to restore moderation in life. Someone who's just moving wild. Okay, as you teach God, sister, the women that you're teaching draw closer to God. And as they draw closer to God, they embrace the beauty and goodness of God's design for their unique sage and situation in life. And so become more godly. They learn above all who they are. Their identity is a gospel identity. Make no mistake about it, one popular Christian women's author is dead wrong when she says, as married Christian women, our identity is our husbands. If you zoned out and you just heard me say that and woke up, I said she's dead wrong. If, if that's the kind of thing you're going to say, maybe don't teach. Teach yourself first. Women, you are you. You are image bearers of the God who created all things. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, your identity is in Him, not in your age, not in your marital status, not in your childbearing or lack thereof. Gospel identity will and must flow into those things. But if you're fixed on a journey of personal purpose or becoming a better you and you're doing it for your husbands and your children, you'll fail and be disappointed. Be fixed on and fed by Christ and you will bear fruit of Christ-likeness. It, it's, this is not for others. It's not even for you, really. It's for God and for His glory. It's for the, for the gospel. That Christ-likeness looks like this. It's in the text. Older women should be taught to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, and the wider message is there to be good teachers and trainers of other women in the church. And as they teach, they so train. And bear in mind the cultural context was one where you were, you were a child and thereby single. And then you were an adult and thereby married. Um, he, there's not really the type gap that we have now in that, that context. Um, he, he says, and so train the younger women. And what he teaches them is particularly about how to be wives and mothers. 
because they are wives and mothers. And do not wives and mothers need someone to come alongside them who's been a wife and a mother to tell them, let me support you. Let me, not let me show you how it's done, but let me support you. Let me encourage you. Let me help you. How can I, even asking questions, how can I assist? What are some things you might like to know? What are, what are some ways in which I can invest in you and your young family? You've got to know a bit about the creeding context. I'm not going to give you a history lecture. <clears throat> you want to dig deeper? Check out a book called New Roman, um, uh, what's it called? Roman Wives and Roman Widows. Roman Wives, Roman Widows. It's by a scholar named Bruce Winter. He talks about the new Roman woman that was developing at this time. In the time of the Roman Empire, you had two categories of woman. You had the, in their own language, the new woman, and you had the modest woman. Um, the, the first century, he writes, a new kind of woman emerged across the Roman Empire, a woman whose provocative dress and sometimes promiscuous lifestyle contrasted starkly with the decorum of the traditional married woman. Uh, the presence of the new woman was felt even in the early church, where Christian wives and widows were um, um, expected to emulate neither the new woman's dress, dress code, or her conduct. The new, the new Roman woman rejected marriage altogether, or if she was married, she had an open or polyamorous arrangement, or was more secretively adulterous. The new Roman woman rejected childbearing and birthing and casually dealt with unwanted pregnancies by visiting abortionists who maintained a growing industry at that time. It's crucial that Christian women embracing their new identity in Christ, the new humanity, did not get mistaken for this kind of new woman. Do you see what Paul's doing here? The culture is talking about another kind of new woman. I've just been preaching about, you're a new woman because the grace of God's appeared. You know, dealing with our sins, past, present, and training us for the future. I'm talking about you being a new woman and then someone out there hears you talking about a new woman and they see you doing stuff and they think, ooh, now this new woman idea has been picked up by a religion and uh, it's been systematized and codified, and this is what Jesus is all about, and we don't like it. Because it's destroying the fabric of our society. It's destroying the foundations of our families, and it's tearing our marriages apart, and our, it's just, no. Now, they had other things that Christianity spoke to. I've already dealt with some of that. The idea of a God who sees and who speaks and all that that means for women in Christ. There were already plenty of things that their uh, culture got wrong with women that Christianity addressed. But Paul was saying the church doesn't need you acting like the wrong kind of new woman. Lovers of your husbands, he says, you're to train them, the younger women, to be lovers of their husbands. And in the Greek it says two things, lovers of their husbands and loving their children. It's kind of conflated, isn't it, in the English? Do you see that? They're, they're to, to love their husbands and children. But in the original language, it's, it's two words, lovers of their husbands and loving their children, which is healthy boundaries and parameters. There are two distinct loves. There's the love of you're to be a wife to your husband, not a mother. And you're to be a mother to your children, not a wife or whatever. Those two distinct loves. You say you love, but do you love? They're to be self-controlled. That's about your inner thought life. Not to be imbalanced or chaotic, but well-regulated according to the rhythm of the good news. Pure, which is to say unadulterated, free from defilement, uncontaminated, not mixed with guilt or anything, um, condemnation. Um, I I don't have time to mess with the way this is twisted by left-wing feminists outside the church to ridicule, misrepresent, and marginalize Christians. I also don't have time to get into how often... That is not helped by right-wing male chauvinists who have used these words to control, manipulate, and abuse. 
But he then says you're to train them to work at home and to, um, to submit to their own husbands. And some of you are wondering what that's about. So I do have to deal with it. Just bear with me. We're, we're, we're landing. Um, to work at home is to watch or keep the house. If you want to know what working at home looks like, read Proverbs 31. She's trustworthy to manage household affairs, to be entrusted with responsibility. She often worked in trade and textiles, organizing, overseeing the diet and acquiring food for the household. This went beyond, the household, by the way, went beyond the family to those employed by or in the service of the family. There is, we have to note, a class thing going on here that, that Paul is not expecting every woman to even have a household to watch or keep because there were slaves, there were servants, and they, there were people who didn't even have a house properly. They had a room, and then they would go and work for someone else. And what Paul is saying here, take the spirit of it and apply it. If that's you today, and it might be, you're a single woman, you're a single mother, you're, you're, you're a working mom, you're, you're you know, whatever, there's... There are some class things that we could talk about, but when he's saying in this text is we have to, to, to maintain um, a healthy work ethic in whatever situation we're at in life. She earned money. Proverbs 31 says she earned money, she saved it, and then she'd research and make wise investments with that money to prosper her family. She was charitable, involved in ministries of mercy and justice, particularly for the poor and needy. She brings a sense of security and stability to the house. She isn't worried about the, the future, but is resourceful and ready. She makes the house a home. She doesn't settle for the bare minimum because her standards are high. Her husband is well-respected, and he's well-respected not least because of all that she does. If you go to Proverbs 31, you can check all that out and see also how she doesn't slander. She speaks wisdom. She doesn't cut down. She speaks faithful instruction. Verse 27 of Proverbs 31 says, She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Are we on the same page? That, that, that's what Paul is talking about. When he says working at home, we have collapsed working at home into something else. For some, it's a law that is, is, is quite oppressive. I've had women who are absolutely incapable in this economic situation of doing anything else other than working outside the home. Working outside the home is not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what he's rebuking. What he's rebuking is the, la the lazy ladies who lunch attitude that was developing in Crete where they could go off and do anything to the neglect of their families. A lot more we can talk about. I'm happy to talk with you about these things. If you want to talk more in depth, we'll, we'll do it. Um, Titus adds that she should be kind because her role as a hardworking wife and mother shouldn't make her bitter or angry, but it can do. She maintains a godly spirit. She's submissive to her, notice that, be submissive to your own husbands. Do you see that? What is that about? I reject categorically the teaching of one popular preacher. I read it to Liana and said, I think this is a great quote, just to see what her reaction was. A woman, whether she is married or single, must recognize the fact that in general, as a woman, she must have a spirit of submission to all men. I profoundly disagree with that. And I do so not because of the spirit of the times, but because I think the scriptures teach something very different. It's an absurd and unbiblical thing to say. But there are relationships of authority Perhaps you don't submit to anyone. Now see how far that gets you in life. Or perhaps you find it easier to submit to someone else's husband. Well, why would, why would you do that? Well, it could be your boss. It could be your pastor. It could be whoever's in charge of the nation. Prime minister or whatever. All relationships of submission that the scriptures teach. If they're men and married, then your submission to them is, in a sense, submitting to someone else's husband. And while such submission is taught in Scripture, God is telling you primarily to submit not to every man. Satan is telling you that. 
Satan's the one who makes God's law bigger than it is. From the very beginning, didn't God say you're not supposed to eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what he said. He said don't eat from one tree. But now there's characters out there saying that, that God wants you to submit to every man out there because they're men and you're, you're women. That's not biblical. What, what he's saying is that you made vows to a man. Submit to that man. That's your husband. And you're his wife. And you have a relationship. You have a marriage. It's not saying that you're less or more important. It's saying that your sphere of responsibility, all of this is saying your sphere of responsibility as a married woman is substantial. It's given to you by God. It's encouraged. It's affirmed in the Scriptures. Finding women who will express legitimate concerns with what even I would agree is a neo-pagan, sub-Christian, cultural expression of patriarchy, that's easy to do. Plenty of women out there talking about that, whether they're Christians or not. The irony is that said women are not at all concerned with the, um, the minimum essentials of alternative matriarchy. The, the, you know, because being, um, uh, yeah, a mother is not really a thing for some. What's instead being created is individualism an individualistic way of living. It's isolating and destroying our women. We're not pursuing social constructs. So I could care less about any of those camps. We're pursuing scriptural complementarity. Men and women in Christ being who they ought to be in Him. Women, you're important. God has work that only you can do. And in certain forms of that work, being wives and mothers has been entrusted to you. Do it with gladness. Reject all legalisms. Can I say definitely reject the legalism that looks down on you for being a wife and mother. And especially the legalism that sneers at you if you're in a place where you can stay at home and serve your family completely from there. I hope you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Why? So that the word of God will not be reviled. That's it. It's not for anyone else, really. We don't want the word of God being reviled. We want to have a gospel identity in a godless culture. And what I've said, some of it, maybe a lot of it is clashing with cultural norms on all sides. We don't want the word of God to be reviled. And so we will submit to the scriptures. Woman, a woman becomes a Christian, doesn't really change. She fits in with the culture around her while at the same time believing something that contradicts it. The word of God is reviled. Woman becomes a Christian. She says, I'm free. I'm going to do my own thing now. Whatever, whatever I, I want to say, I'm going to say. However I want to say it, I'm going to say it. I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm free in Christ. She reviles the word of God. She brings it into disrepute. Woman becomes a Christian. She says, I'm going to work hard, pursue excellence as a follower of Christ in my career. My husband and children, they'll just have to fit their lives around me. It's for the glory of God. The word of God's reviled. Woman becomes a Christian. I'm going to choose keeping my house over career. <laughs> I'm going to choose keeping my house over career. But those who know her know she didn't have a career to start with. And she doesn't really keep her house either. She says stuff that sounds good to self-righteously obscure her laziness. She says it's how God has ordered things. Through her, the word of God is brought into disrepute. I could go on and on. A woman becomes a Christian. She intentionally doesn't have a husband or children because she seems to imply in some crowd that she's closer to God that way, but in other crowds, they know other reasons are behind it. She, she's married, perhaps. I've heard this one. Unscriptural reason. She divorces her husband. He, she divorces him because he's not a believer. The Bible says don't do that. She disrupts the family because she says God is calling her to a new season in life. The word of God is reviled. Okay. Begins and ends with the gospel. What's the solution? The gospel. 
The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's historical foundations. It has appeared. There's eternal perspective. Jesus is coming again. That produces contemporary reality and experience. Be the woman that God made you to be because He's remade you. You are the right kind of new woman in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you, sisters. Father, thank you for the sisters of Grace Baptist Church Woodgreen. We pray that they would shine brightly as the women you have made them to be. We pray that they would be affirmed and encouraged, that they would be built up and strengthened. We pray, Lord God, that you would, in your goodness, that you would um, uh, grant them favor, sustain them in every way for every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen.